Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. If you're just joining us, last week we began a series in the book of Romans. It's the, the longest of Paul's letters in the New Testament, and, and it's the first of the epistles. And there's a reason why it's first. Um, you know, Christians for centuries have recognized that in Romans, there is the, the clearest and richest outline of what does it mean that Jesus came to earth, uh, died a sinner's death, rose from the dead in victory over sin and over its sentence, and, and is now reigning at the right hand of the throne of God, the one whom we worship um, right now. We, uh, we spent uh, just a little bit of time last week doing an overview, talking about the beginning of Romans, the end of Romans, and then the, the middle of Romans, which acts like a hinge, this, this giant hinge that I've got, this like super industrial strength used hinge, a hinge that works. And that is what the mercy of God is supposed to be in our lives. It's a hinge. And in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, as you see the mercy and love of God to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then he spends the rest of the next four chapters of the book of Romans talking about the life that is transformed by the love and the mercy of God in the gospel of Jesus. So that as we live our lives in view of God's mercy, and we turn, and we, this hinge of, of the mercy of God then turns our lives outward so that the rest of the world can see through us the mercy of God in us, the reality and the, the dynamics of that power, and the power of the gospel that, that, is, that is at work in us. So this morning, I'm going to read verses 8 through 17, and, and these are words that Paul is saying to those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, those who are loved by God and are called to be holy ones, called to be set apart, called to be saints. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to start in verse 8 of chapter 1. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Father, would you bless your word to us this morning? Indeed, this is your word. It's not any person's imagination at work. And Lord, we receive it as not just counsel, not just advice, not a myth or a legend, but truth. We pray that you would reveal more and more of your truth to us in Jesus and for his name's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Um, Paul here in these verses, I think what we see is a picture of his his passion for this body of believers who he's never met, uh, but he obviously has a, a deep affinity for his passion for this group of believers in the church at Rome, and then also his passion for the gospel that really has formed the power and the agent that, that has constituted this group of believers in Rome. So we're going to look first at his passion for the believers at Rome, and then we're going to look at his passion for the gospel. Um, he starts off with some really, um, I mean, I don't know, it, it sounds to me kind of over-the-top language, but for, for what it's worth, let's just review it again. He says, you know, I thank my God for all of you. Um, God is my witness. He sort of, you know, takes this oath. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit. Um, some of your translations are going to say, who I serve with my whole heart, with my, my heart of hearts. You know, his guts are, are in this that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. You know, okay, so maybe there's a little hyperbole there, but the message is clear. These believers are on his mind and on his heart a lot. And now he says, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He'd been prevented before. He'd been trying to get to Rome. And he says, I long to see you. I really want to be with you all. And You get a picture of his passion, right? He really cares about these people. Um, He's not just doing his duty. He's not just writing one letter of many uh, just to kind of get through his list. He really has a deep passion for these people, again, whom he's never met. Um, This is a picture of his passion for the church. He's talking about these people who have been transformed by the gospel. And Paul's a man who we see him interacting over and over and over again with different people and different people groups. But you get a very clear picture in all of these different letters and all of the historical accounts of him in the book of Acts. He's got fundamentally two passions, the gospel and the people who are transformed by that gospel. And it's a good place for us to pause right now and say, well, all right, Paul is a bit of a pace setter for us. He stands out in the front of the Christian crowd and he's a model, a mentor, a discipler. And in light of his passions, in light of his passion for God's people, how, do, how does my passion for the church, how does your passion for the church, how does our passion for the people who God is gathering and who he has included, who are called to belong to Jesus, who are 
who are loved by God and called to be saints, how does our passion for those people compare to Paul's passion for these people? That's a fair question. But uh, it's a, it's a short-sighted question because really we have to keep in mind that even though Paul's kind of out in front of the Christian crowd, Paul is a discipler, but he's also a disciple. He's a shepherd, but like us, he's also a sheep. Um, we're all disciples. And so the real question is how does Paul's passion and how does our passion compare with Jesus's passion for God's people, for his sheep, for his people that, well, that he laid down his life for. And all of a sudden there, you know, we, we get humbled quickly and we go, boy, um, okay, my passion's really not, not quite where it should be in, in regard to all the other things that compete for our allegiance. God says his people are, are the apple of his eye and the most important thing in the, on this planet in, in creation to him, God's people. And, uh, and how does our passion for God's people compare with, not only with Paul, but really with, with Christ? And so I'm aware that, okay, maybe I've lost some of you with those comparisons. Paul, Jesus, you know, I just, you just figure that's completely out of your league. So, you know, why, why even bother to kind of get upset about that? Maybe I'm over-spiritualizing this, right? I'll dial it back. Let's just back off and say, how does your passion for God's people, for those who are transformed by this gospel, how does your passion for the church uh, not in Rome, but in Waynesboro, their church at Tabernacle, compare with your passion for the Panthers? How does your passion compare with your passion for the Broncos? And some of you, lest you be tempted to be a bit smug at this point, because you could care less about this game, whatever, you know. How does your passion for the church compare with your passion for Lord Grantham? And Lady Mary, and you know that other show you're going to be watching instead of the Super Bowl. Um, all right, goofy comparison, but I hope it drives the point home. Disciples aren't measured simply by what we do or what we believe, not just simply by our practices or by our doctrine, but by our affection. We're supposed to love what Jesus loves and and hate what Jesus hates. We're supposed to long for the things that Jesus longs for and eschew the things that Jesus says, you know, that really has nothing to do with me and my kingdom. Uh, and this is a pattern for disciples to think the way Jesus thinks, to act like Jesus acts, but also to feel the way Jesus feels about the things that Jesus feels those things. And he loves the church. He longs for the church. They're the apple of his eye. You know, um, let me talk about his language here about your faith being proclaimed in all the world. He's really proud of these saints. And they have a reputation that's gone before them. They've got this, I don't know, um, people are noticing, boy, the, the saints in Rome have really been transformed. And they take on this characteristic that, that is clearly demonstrating that they're a colony of the kingdom of God. I don't know if that really had to do with persecution under the emperor. I don't know if that had to do with their generosity. You know, we're not really given a whole lot of details. But we do know that Paul can say about the saints in Rome, wow, look at these people. You want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus? Look at those Roman Christians. And here's another place where we should pause and say, well, does anybody say that about us, about you? Can anybody point to your life and say, you should hear about this person's faith? And you should see the way this person follows Jesus. You should see the way these people follow Jesus, the church at Tabernacle. And 
Here's where I just, I want to give thanks and I'll, I'll brag on you. Because this community does hear about your faith, about our faith. Um, I got a, an email from a family in the church who's looking to uh, go and become foster parents. And so to become a foster parent, you've got to go through an interview and training with the Department of Social Services here locally. And I got an email from this family, and they were just sort of sharing this really cool encounter with the director of social services. His name's Steve Young. And this family relates to me that when, when we, we met Steve Young for the first time face-to-face yesterday, and um, we had emailed with him and spoken to him on the phone. But when Steve saw your name, my name, on our form, he excitedly said that he knew you and that our application got a gold star. Because it's not actually about me. Because he goes on. All right, he, here's how it actually ends. Uh, your application got a gold star. He expressed how thankful he has been for TAB's support over the years. And if you're just kind of joining us, uh, every year we, we, uh, we put backpacks together for every single school-age foster child in our community. Uh, we put Christmas gifts together for uh, foster kids in our community, um, we do. Um, uh, we have the ministry Orphan Hope, and you know we do uh, things to encourage foster parents. We've got the foster care closet next door. So, the Department of Social Services sees our faith, and they go, "Look at their faith," you know, and that's cool. So, well done. Uh, I can point to the Verona Community Food Pantry every Thanksgiving. We do a food drive and. Hunter Faber is the director there, and I keep hearing the same report every single year. Tabernacle brings the single largest um, donation of food from any private organization or agency every year. And they go, wow, this is awesome. Thank you so much. And they see our faith. Young Life. Um, we were sitting having a lunch with Dave Harris and, uh, and Evan, the new guy who's down at Draft High School, um, you know, Dom and Jamie are in Pennsylvania now. And we're sitting with Dave and Evan and trying to figure out, all right, what do we do to sort of keep the ministry of Young Life in front of Tabernacle? How can we help uh, us as a body continue to support this ministry and keep the gospel in front of high school students, um, students who uh, are, are, you know, have been pregnant and kept their babies and, you know, hoping to get the high school more and more in front of middle school students. And Dave says, you know, there are really, really very few churches in this community who are pursuing us to help us get in front of congregations and, you know, help people pray for us and, and build awareness of what this ministry is about. So, like, Young Life sees our commitment to the gospel with them, alongside them. Comfort care, I could say the same thing. So, I just want to affirm, people see your faith. Well done, and we got to, you know, we're going to continue to do things like that and continue to help people see more of Jesus uh, and his mercy to us and through us. So this is sort of the good gossip, you know, that's going on about you guys. Um, Paul says to the Romans, I long to see you. He really wants to be with these people. Despite his thwarted efforts uh, to get to Rome, um, and that could have been uh, Claudius's ban on Jewish people in Rome or, you know, other things that came up in Paul's life, but he kept trying to get to Rome. He's going to get there eventually, uh, but he's going to do it in a little unorthodox way. He's going to be a, a, a prisoner, and he's going to be jailed in Rome. Uh, you have to read Acts to, to hear about that. So you see his heart, his passion for these people. Paul is an incredible theologian, and most people 
when they look at Romans, they're in it for what does Romans teach us theologically? And they look at Paul as a theologian. Paul, yes, was a theologian, but first and foremost, he was a pastor. He was a church planter. He was a missionary. And his heart was for these people. His heart broke for these people. His heart rejoiced for these people. And, uh, and I, remember, I remember meeting a very celebrated theologian and author uh, in our sort of tradition, our theological circles. Uh, I met this guy in seminary, and, uh, and I've read a bunch of his books, and I've heard him speak and been to his seminars and so on. And, and I met him, and I was so excited. Kathy and I were together. We were so excited to meet him. And it was just a, it was a weird it's a weird encounter. He just, he seemed annoyed, I guess is the best way to describe it. We, we were just um, in his way, I guess I should say. And I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, maybe he had a bad day. He was just grumpy, you know, had to rush out and didn't finish his Cheerios or something. Um, and I don't know what it was, but it was sort of the same experience you and I might have when you see something like a, a really decadent brownie on the table and you know, you're hungry, and that brownie looks good, and so you just kind of grab it up, and you just take a big bite without thinking about it, and then there's something moving <laughs> in your mouth, and then the brownie's covered in ants, you know, the little tiny fairy ants, and you just go, ugh, so something was not right. I was looking forward to this moment. It was going to be sweet, and it just, mm, no, it wasn't. That's not Paul. That's not Paul's heart. Paul was so excited for these Romans. If he had met, you know, hey, I'm, I'm from the church in Rome, he just would have been all over them, big bear hug, loving them well. Paul's heart is a really, really good thing for us to, to see here in Romans. Where we not only see his heart for the people, we see his passion and his heart for the gospel. Again, he, he kind of knows his stuff when it comes to theology and comes to the gospel. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. Verses 14 and 15, he talks about this obligation to preach, um, and this literally a word is debt. Um, he knows that this is not a debt that he pays back to Jesus. You can't pay Jesus back. There's no way you and I could pay him back. What he's talking about is the kind of debt where we are so blessed and so loved because of the salvation that's given to us that the kind of debt that we pay is not paid back to Jesus but paid forward to others. There's this obligation. Remember, Paul said he was a slave, a bondservant um, to Jesus when it comes to this gospel. And he says, I'm really, really eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. This this eagerness is something where um, he wakes up in the morning uh, and he's like, uh, uh, you know, the beginning of the Lego movie. Just can't wait to get out of bed and get to work. Um, He's so eager Y'all remember seeing the commercials for the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes? What would it be like to be on staff with the Publishers Clearinghouse? And to wake up every morning, and what do you get to do? You, you get to swing by the store and pick up some helium balloons. You get to swing by the print shop and grab that giant check, you know, that's written out to so-and-so for a million dollars. And you go and you knock on somebody's door and you say, guess what? I get to give you this. I get to pay this to you. You know, I'm under obligation to present this to you. And they're not keeping it to themselves. They know that their purpose, their joy, their passion is to celebrate something beautiful and good and enriching. And in Paul's case, the riches of God given to us in the gospel of Jesus. He's eager to preach the gospel to him, to them. Um, you know, the contrary side of that, another way to express it is he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm, I'm eager to preach it. I'm not ashamed of it. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel, verses 16 and 17, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These are two of the most important verses, arguably, in the Bible. The whole Bible is God's word, uh, but there are some places in the Bible where you go and it just, you know, it's so clear. This is what God has done for us in the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because really two things. It's the power of God for salvation and the gospel is a revelation of the righteousness of God. If, um, if you were reading Romans as a sermon or as a, a paper, uh, this would be his thesis statement. This would be his his sort of summary statement. The rest of the book of Romans is basically his exposition of Habakkuk 2.4, which is his verse here, the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul's just going to unpack what that means to live by faith. The gospel comes to us by faith. First of all, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. That means the gospel is not some other things. The gospel is not the myth of God for salvation. It's, it's, not, a, it's not mythological. It's, it's truly historical and factual. And, you know, there are eyewitnesses and archaeological evidence and all kinds of stuff that says this is factual and historical, not mythical. So the gospel is the power of God, not the myth of God. And the gospel is, is also, it's not the theory of God. It's... Um, it's not an idea that, that we debate, um, like a theory. It's, it's a truth that God calls us to believe. Um, the expression last week you see in the earlier verses is the obedience of faith. If this is true, we need to believe it. If it's not true, we, we should you know, reject it because it's a lie. But if it's true, and it's cosmically true, and it's universally true, and we'd be foolish not to believe it. We don't just keep it at arm's length and debate it. It's not a myth. It's not, it's not a theory. It's not advice. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. It's not the advice of God for salvation, as if believing the gospel is just going to kind of make your life go better. The gospel is not advice. The gospel is a pardon from death, um, and it's not just... Yeah, will your life become more holistic? Will your life become more consistent? Yes, you'll live the life that God designed you to live more and more. But this is not in the same category as helpful hints from Heloise. The gospel is a pardon uh, from death. And lastly, to think about the gospel as the power of God, not an option of God. Um, you know, a lot of, it's popular to think of many, many ways to relate to God. Many, many ways to have a relationship with God. And Jesus comes along and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are his words, not mine. Uh, that sounds exclusive. That sounds restrictive. Yes, I know. Jesus said it, though. So what are we going to do with that? We have to either acknowledge, is Jesus telling us the truth? Is he lying to us? What do we do with his words? And what do we do with the claim that this is the way? It's not one way among many as one of many options. It's the power of God. It's the power of God, which also tells us that it's not our power. Paul says that he's not 
ashamed of the gospel. Why would he say that? Why would he think that he, he should be ashamed? Or why would the kind of other way that that's expressed is the gospel gives offense? And so, uh, you know, he might be tempted to, to shy away from communicating this message that he knows will bring offense. Not because he's trying to be offensive. Goodness knows there's too many Christians who are actually, it seems like they're trying to be offensive. Paul's not trying to be offensive, but he knows that the gospel is inherently contrary to our pride and our, our arrogance, thinking that I'm good enough and smart enough and doggone it, people like me, God should like me too, I can get into heaven. Like John was talking about, what, how do you know you're going to go to heaven when you die? I, I be, well, at the end of the day, the reason why I think I'm going to go to heaven is because I'm not as bad as those people. And God says, you're drawing the dividing line in completely the wrong place. The reason why the gospel is offensive is because it tells us that we're powerless. Uh, it tells us that uh, our sin is far worse than we ever imagined. It tells us that our ability is far less than we dare to dream. Um, the gospel tells us things like, uh, you know, you need a savior. And the solution for your situation is a crucifixion. Now, if you have a headache, generally what you will do, if you know, you're a normal person, is you'll go and you'll get some aspirin, some Aleve, or some you know, Tylenol. And, you'll, and, and, and in that sense, the, the, the prescription or the cure that you look for sort of matches the, the condition, the, the problem. Headache, aspirin. What would you say to somebody who said, ah, oh, you know, my head hurts. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the cancer center and get some chemo. You know, that'll help me out. Because that is an, an, just a ridiculously wrong prescription for a simple headache. However... If your headache doesn't go away after taking aspirin, Tylenol, acetaminophen, or um, you know, Aleve, if your headache persists, it's chronic, it doesn't go away, and you go, all right, nothing is touching this, I gotta see my doctor. Your doctor says, okay, how long has this headache been going on? Hmm, we need to do some tests now. Uh, let's run you over and get a CT scan, an MRI, and so on. Let's see what's going on here, and then, hmm. We're looking at brain cancer here. And we need to talk about chemo. And we need to talk about radiation. And we need to talk about an extreme solution to an extreme condition. And in that sense, think spiritually now, your spiritual headache where we go, you know, I, I know I'm not perfect. I know, I know my, my spiritual condition, I've sort of got like a headache. That's a good clue. All right, something's wrong, but is that all that's wrong? Because the Bible over and over again testifies that our, our, our spiritual condition is one that's like a cancer and it's terminal. And the solution that God provides, the cure, the healing, is a crucifixion, which is not a tame solution. And that's offensive to us. It tells us that, you know what, uh, my, my problem is far worse than I ever imagined. And I belong in the category of those people who don't deserve to go to heaven instead of the people that do. And when you look at the ramifications for God's requirement of righteousness and perfection and beauty and perfection in, in heaven, nobody deserves to go there except for the one who was truly, perfectly, beautifully righteous, and that was Jesus. 
So when you start thinking about what the gospel is telling us about our sin, about God's solution, it starts to, get, it starts to rub you wrong because it's different than what religion says. Religion says you can be good enough. Religion says you can try hard enough. The religion says that, you know what, you're okay. You need improving, but you're okay. Jesus, through the gospel, tells us that we're not okay, that we're dead, that we don't need improving, that we need resurrecting. And that's why I loved the quote by Marvin Olasky. I was reading in World Magazine last week. He says that only Christianity teaches that our hope lies not in ascending to God-like status, but in God descending to become man. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And the second thing is that the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God. When you look at verse, uh, that verse about the revelation of the righteousness of God, plenty of people have looked at that verse and they've kind of gone, what exactly is being revealed? When it says the righteousness of God. A man named Martin Luther centuries ago was wrestling with that very verse, that very sentence, and he's like, hates the righteousness of God. Because when he reads that verse, he was originally reading it thinking that that was the perfection of God, this perfection that we've got to attain. I've got to get there. I've got to muster the religious and spiritual energy to to do that. And so in order to do that, Martin Luther was trying everything he could think of. He he went into full-time Christian service. You know, he became a monk. And as a monk, he would would fast all the time. Um, His health would be compromised. He would sleep uh, without blankets, you know, thinking that if I suffer through the night cold, uh, God's going to see that and he's going to reward that. He's going to think I'm a good boy. And so God is um, this person to appease, this tyrant that we've got to somehow make happy by all of our effort. And Martin Luther really just flat out said, I hated God. I hated his righteousness. But when he began to see that the righteousness of God in verses 17 and 18 is not this requirement that we match his righteousness, but instead is the righteousness that he gives us as a gift. Everything changed. Martin Luther said that whereas before the justice or the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. It became to him a gate for heaven. Luther was trying to, trying to measure up. He would go to confession. He would sit in the confession booth for six hours at a time, confessing his sins, everything he could think of. And he would try these Herculean, you know, superhero spiritual effort to make God happy with them because he knew he could ask for forgiveness as long as the day is, but there would still be something left to ask forgiveness for. And, there, and, and yet, even though he may be free from condemnation, he still didn't feel like there was anything to commend him to God. And he was just stuck. He was like, I, I can't get right with God. And Victor Hugo gives us a picture of this in Les Miserables. If you Uh, Remember the movie from about 10 years ago where uh, Liam Neeson plays Jean Valjean. You remember Qui-Gon Jinn? Uh, He plays Jean Valjean. And the scene is right at the beginning of the movie, and Jean Valjean has been, he's on parole. He's been released from 19 years of hard labor for stealing bread and for trying to escape. 
and he's been traveling 160 miles on foot for four days, four nights. He's barely eaten, barely slept, and he shows up and knocks on the bishop's door. Bishop says, who can that be to um, the people at the table? He goes to the door, and Jean Valjean simply says, do you have any food you can spare? The bishop doesn't answer his question. Bishop says, come in. Come in. Jean Valjean says, look, I'm a convict. My name is Jean Valjean. I've served 19 years hard labor. They let me out four days ago. I'm on parole. I have to go all the way to Dijon to report on Monday or they'll send me back to prison. Here's my passport. I can't read, but I know what it says. He's very dangerous. There's a copy of the movie prop passport on your front of your bulletin. You can see it in French, you know, very dangerous in French. Bishop says, Monsieur, you are welcome to eat with us as my guest. So, so far, the bishop has said two things to Jean Valjean. Come in, and you are welcome to eat with us as a guest. So far, Valjean has said, I'm a convict. I'm very dangerous. He repeats himself, I'm a convict. You saw my passport. Bishop says, I know who you are. Valjean says, you're going to let me inside your house? Scene shifts to the dinner table. Um, Madame Guillot says, what crime did you commit? She's nervous, anxious, not exactly on board with the bishop at this point. And Valjean says, maybe I killed someone. How do you know I'm not going to murder you? To which the bishop says, how do you know I'm not going to murder you? I guess we'll just have to trust each other. Valjean appreciates the joke. Uh, (laughs) Valjean says, I didn't kill anyone. I'm a thief. I stole food. I stole, but I paid for it. 19 years and change. So they let me out and gave me a yellow passport. Listen to this. What can I do with a yellow passport? I have to go to my parole officer in Dijon. And then what? Starve to death? 19 years, and now the real punishment begins. Men can be unjust, the bishop says. Valjean retorts, men? Not God? Can God be unjust? Can he be unrighteous? By no means. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is, is revealed by faith. From faith to faith. Because that is, as is said, the righteous will live by faith. How does this work? God in his righteousness executed justice on Jesus. Jesus took the sentence for our sin on the cross. God in his righteousness has appeased the law and in his righteousness and his graciousness has given us that right standing with God as a gift because the law has been satisfied. Therefore, he can turn to us and say, you're forgiven and I give you my righteousness. I declare you right. I have approved of you. You no longer just simply hold the yellow passport that says your sins are forgiven. You now have a certificate of adoption that says you are loved, accepted, and welcome. Come in. You're not a convict anymore. You're not a thief anymore. You're not a sinner anymore. You're a saint. You're loved. Come in and join the family. Join the meal. 
This is the righteousness of God on display for us. In chapter 3, Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifested, revealed, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The power of God is revealed in the gospel. That power and righteousness is revealed in a very, very graphic way in the crucifixion. And that same power and righteousness is revealed in a very gracious and glorious way in our salvation, in our justification. And you and I don't get that by earning it. We don't get that by working really hard. We don't get that by impressing God. We get that by faith. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us grace to believe your promises? Would you turn us from our addiction to trying to impress people and trying to impress you? Would you so assure us of a righteousness that comes from you that it would totally transform the way we view ourselves and the way that we view others, the way that we view you, so that we would stop looking at others as people to impress, but look at them as people to bless. We would stop looking to you as someone to appease, but know that you were, you were pleased with us. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus.